Okay, I think we'll go ahead and get started. So today, the book of Zechariah, and then just a few more books, actually, and uh, we'll be into the New Testament. Um, I wanted to mention that when we're done with the Old Testament, uh, we're going to have cover just a couple topics that I think are important in between. Uh, one will be the subject of Bible translation, and uh, then we'll have another topic more about the historical aspect of uh, Jesus. Was there really a person named Jesus? We might spend uh, one time on that. I haven't decided yet. All right, so let's pray as we begin. Dear Father, we ask just now that uh, we could come very close to you. Please quiet down the noise and anxiety that is just a part of our daily life. And just now may we turn to you and reveal something to us about your goodness and your love. Amen. Well, you know, for again, for most of you that have been here last year, you know, we've been trying to do this Bible study more as a, a story. And the Bible really is a story. 80% of the Bible is a story, uh, even though uh, the trend in modern Christianity is we talk theology and we use big Latin words. But the Bible is really a story and uh, should be read that way. But that's a little bit difficult with a book like Zechariah. Here's kind of a big overview of the book of Zechariah, which is basically a series of visions a vision of four horses, four horns, a measuring line, a fascinating vision of Joshua, Satan, and the angel of the Lord, vision of the lampstand and two olive trees, a flying scroll, a woman in a basket, a vision of four chariots, a whole section on justice and injustice, and the future king, the two shepherds, uh, incredible description of two shepherds, and then finally future Jerusalem. So which of these topics should we cover? This is always... Um, here the, the problem with this kind of a Bible study is to try to get through in two years. We can't possibly go through each one of these. So I've kind of selected um, what was most interesting to me this, this last week. But kind of picking up on uh, what we talked about last time, there are just incredible messianic passages in the book of Zechariah that tie into uh, our subject last time. For example, then the Lord will be king over all the earth and everyone will worship him as God and know him by the same name. Now, this is the description of the new earth. Uh, very, very important symbolism employed here. Remember, we've said name is character. Everyone will know God by the same name. Uh, very similar to this passage in Isaiah. On Zion, God's sacred hill, there will be nothing harmful or evil. This is in the passage that describes children playing by snakes and all of that. Uh, the land will be as full of knowledge of the Lord as the seas are full of water. So again, what knowledge will that be? Full of the knowledge of the Lord. Again, that's not; those are not facts. Uh, that is an intimate, personal, relational knowledge based on a knowledge of God's true character. And maybe just one more, this passage here. Rejoice, people of Zion. Shout for joy, you people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. What's the description here of this future king? He comes triumphant and victorious, but humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Again, was the Messiah expected to be humble? Well, there are certainly passages that point towards a humble servant God. Those were overlooked. The Lord says, I will remove the war chariots from Israel and take the horses from Jerusalem. The bows used in battle will be destroyed. Your king will make peace among the nations. Many times in the New Testament, it is described that when Jesus died, he made peace in the universe. 
He will rule from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. I guess the logical question is, what have Christians been doing for the last 2,000 years? But uh, fighting frequently, killing in the name of Christ, what does that mean that the king will make peace among the nations? Well, we'll have to talk about this uh, when we come to Colossians, but certainly Jesus came to bring a kingdom that is not of this world. His kingdom is not to be a military kingdom, not by might, but by my spirit. And, uh, you know, again, Jesus essentially said to Peter, put down the sword, take up your cross and follow me. It's a kingdom not like a worldly kingdom. Jesus came to bring a kingdom of peace. So what I've decided to do here is we're going to go, rather than superficially going through a lot of these, we're going to go into detail into two of these passages. One, the vision of the lampstand and two olive trees. That's very interesting. And we're going to start now with this uh, whole passage on the injustice of the people during the 70 years and a little bit about what is God's justice. So first of all, the injustice. Zechariah describes what was going on during the 70 years and the people actually came and asked a question about fasting. And we have this uh, interesting reply. When they fasted and mourned during these 70 years, it was not in honor of me. And when they ate and drank, it was for their own satisfaction. I like the message translation of this. When you held days or fasts all these 70 years, were you doing it for me? And when you held feasts, was that for me? Hardly. You're interested in religion. I'm interested in people. And this is contrasted so many times where the injustice is to be a religious people that persecute the poor and the outcasts of society. And uh, we get this incredible passage here. After describing all of this injustice, God would say this, this is what the Lord of armies says, administer real justice. Now, when you think about God's justice, in fact, if you could substitute another word, someone just says, we're going to talk about God's justice. Uh, what would you... What things come to mind when you think about the justice of God? Any other words that uh, you would replace the word justice with? Righteousness. Righteousness? Yeah, I like that very much. In fact, aren't in so many languages just and right the same word? I just We have a friend who speaks Portuguese, and he said, if you were to ask me to translate the passage, God is righteous and just, it would be God is just and just. Okay, so... Uh, yeah, that's that's a wonderful substitution. Well, before we get to this, I think just to make a point that really, and I think it's unfortunate, but Christian theology has pretty much been completely overtaken by one model of things, and that is the legal model. Everything is described in a legal model uh, that kind of denies all of the other ways that things are expressed. I mean, what about the marriage model? There's so much. I mean, the Bible ends with God consummating the marriage with his people. There are so many illustrations like that. So we, we tend to think of everything in legal terms. We hear the word justice. We think of it in terms of our modern legal judicial system. You do the crime, you do the time, justice has been satisfied. So we tend to carry all of our meaning uh, from today's uh, phrases that are used. I mean, when we hear George Bush say, we will bring the terrorists to justice, what does he mean? We're going to punish them appropriately. Okay, but if we just look up all of the references to God's justice and what God's justice is in the Bible, um, I think we come to a rather surprising conclusion. Things are often much different than we might assume them 
uh, to be. So coming back to this passage, this is what the Lord of Armies says, administer real justice. What does God's justice look like? Be compassionate and kind to each other. Don't oppress widows, orphans, foreigners, and poor people. And don't even think of doing evil to each other. Hey, God's justice, real justice, is basically to correct injustice that is done to the outcasts of society. Uh, that is ultimately what God's justice is. It is about bringing a loving restoration. There are so many verses uh, we can't do justice, uh, no pun intended here, but can't do justice to this subject, but just a few more in the Old Testament because the Hebrew concept of justice is about this sort of loving, making right justice. Another one in Zechariah. These are the things that you should do. Speak the truth to one another. In the courts, give real justice. Again, what does that real justice look like? The kind that brings peace. Do not plan waves of harming one another. Do not give false testimony under oath. I hate lying, injustice, and violence. We do not find in the Bible um, a description of God's justice, meaning pouring out punishment on people. God's justice is to correct the violence that is going on in the world. And just as more evidence of this, defend the poor and fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and needy, punish the afflicted and needy. No, do justice to them. Take care of them. That is God's justice. In Isaiah 1, wash yourselves clean. Stop all this evil that I see you doing. Yes, stop doing evil and learn to do right. See that justice is done we read on for clarification, help those who are oppressed, give orphans their rights, and defend widows. It is a loving restoration, a making right justice in the world. In Jeremiah, this is what the Lord says to the dynasty of David, give justice each day to the people you judge. What does that mean? Help those who have been robbed, rescue them from their oppressors. It is just there again and again and again, that same theme. This is what God's justice looks like. Isaiah 30, the Lord is waiting to be kind to you. He rises to have compassion on you. The Lord is a God of justice. And what we just read is God's justice, God's mercy in action. He's waiting to be kind, waiting to pour out his compassion. That is the justice of God. Now, do you notice the difference between this first section up here and down here? What, it's the same words, but what's different? What button did I click on the computer? This is justified. You notice that the margins on the right and the left are the same. They're set right. And God's justice is ultimately to set things right. I mean, we still use the term in this way, right? Now, this is not to say um, we need to talk about what is God's punishment? What is God's anger? Okay, but... When we talk about God's justice, this is what the Bible uses to describe the justice of God. Maybe one more in Ezekiel. For this is what the sovereign Lord says, enough, you princes of Israel, stop your violence and oppression and do what is just and right. Quit robbing and cheating my people out of their land. Stop expelling them from their homes, says the sovereign Lord. And this is the last one in Micah 6. The Lord has told us what is good. What he requires of us is this to do what is just, to show constant love, and to live in humble fellowship with our God. These three are in perfect harmony, to do what is just or right, to show constant love, to live in humble fellowship with our God. Again, revealing this uh, bigger picture of what God's justice is all about. 
And so uh, a Hebrew word here for justice, tzedakah, and it's interesting that a lot of Hebrew Jewish charities use this same word. And from one of these websites, uh, I pulled up here their definition of this Hebrew word for justice about their charity. And it had this meaning. The gist of tzedakah is charity, the giving of your time or money to help someone else without expecting something in return. It is one of the cornerstones of the Jewish religion. Okay, it should be one of the cornerstones of the Christian religion. It runs all the way through the Old Testament, this singular theme about God's justice. Now, the question is, did the meaning of justice change? We move from Old Testament to New Testament. Uh, do we now have a totally different interpretation about God's justice? No, it's the exact same meaning. In fact, there's one Greek word that can either be translated as justice or righteousness. Just as a few examples here, Matthew 23. Jesus would say, how terrible for you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give to God one-tenth, even of the seasoning herbs such as mint, dill, but you neglect to obey the really important teachings of the law, such as justice and mercy and honesty. These you should practice without neglecting the others. This is the same kind of context as this passage we read in um, Zechariah, which is the people are very religious. They're very concerned about their religious duties, they don't care about the people. How are they treating the outcasts of society? Uh, how did they treat lepers? I mean, they were concerned about religion, not people. That is not just. And in this uh, messianic passage, this is quoted from the book of Isaiah. Now I think uh, we can understand this a little better. Here is my servant, whom I have chosen, the one I love, and whom I would delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. Translate loving restoration to victory. Same meaning of justice here in the New Testament. And uh, this next one, there's no way that we can go into all this. It's one of the most controversial passages in the whole New Testament. Romans 3, 25 and 26. I'm just going to bring out one little aspect of this because it's translated in various ways. Here is the NIV version, perfectly wonderful translation of this. God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement, atonement, reconciliation, through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Yes, the justice of God was demonstrated at the cross because in his forbearance he'd left the sins uncommitted beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And we often read lots of things into this. We need to understand that meaning of justice all the way through the Bible. And so how this passage is translated in various versions, notice. Uh, here's the today's English version. God offered him so that by his blood he should become the means by which people's sins are forgiven through their faith in him. God did this in order to demonstrate that he is righteous. Same word, same Greek word. In the past, he was patient and overlooked people's sins, but in the present time, he deals with their sins in order to demonstrate his righteousness. Is not the cross the supreme demonstration of the goodness, the love, the character, the righteousness of our God? Substitute justice, that's just fine, as long as we're understanding what that word justice means. God shows that he himself is righteous, just, and then he puts right everyone who believes in Jesus. 
And this meaning carries all the way through. Book of Revelation talks about the robe of righteousness. And you know, if you go back to older translations of the Bible, it is the robe of justice. Okay, but if we, again, understand that meaning of justice, that means that the righteousness, the goodness of God is lived out in the lives of his people. And they're treating the outcasts of society, they're correcting injustice and violence. Uh, that's what it ultimately means to have a robe of justice or righteousness. So we'll, we'll have to round this out much more, but um, that's basically how I would understand the justice of God. God always does what is just and right, and that is a making right, loving restoration. Now, the other main topic I wanted to cover today is this whole uh, incredible vision of two olive trees and a lampstand. The angel had been speaking to me, came again and roused me as if I'd been sleeping. What do you see, he asked. A lampstand made of gold, I answered. At the top is a bowl for the oil. On the lampstand are seven lamps, each one with places for seven wicks. There are two olive trees beside the lampstand and one on each side of it. Then I asked the angel, what do those things stand for, sir? Don't you know, he asked me. No, I don't, sir. And so many times... God comes with a vision or something like that, and it almost seems like the prophet doesn't have the courage to say, you know, what did that just mean? But it seems like every time uh, there's some, someone asks for meaning or clarification, uh, we get some additional meaning. So the angel told me to give Zerubbabel this message from the Lord. You will succeed not by military might or by your own strength, but by my spirit. Obstacles as great as mountains will disappear before you. You will rebuild the temple and as you put the last stone in place, the people will shout, beautiful, beautiful. Okay, so this was the message. Now, what, is, what do the symbols have to do with this message? Not by military might, not by your own strength, but by my spirit. Well, we read on. Then I asked him, what do these two olive trees on either side of the lampstand mean? And what is the meaning of the two branches of the olive trees that feed oil to the lamps? What do they mean? He asked me, don't you know? No, I don't, sir, I answered. Then he said, these are the two men whom God has chosen and anointed to serve him, the Lord of the whole earth. And these two men in Zechariah are Zerubbabel, who's the governor, and Joshua, who's the high priest. Okay, so very clearly here, the two olive trees represent these two men. Now, there's a much greater meaning that applies to us, but during that time, these are the olive trees, and they're symbolically here connected to this lampstand, and we have oil flowing between the two. What is the oil? Well, uh, the picture described here would not be foreign, obviously, to these people. Uh, we have uh, many places this oil that was described and used in Exodus 27, command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the light so that the lamps may be kept burning. So this oil keeping the lampstand going, uh, this carries through all the way. And the oil we are to associate with the Holy Spirit. So it's not by force nor by strength, but by my spirit. And uh, most people uh, agree that the oil does represent the Holy Spirit. For in the Old Testament, someone is anointed where they anointed with oil is poured on the head. Jesus was anointed at his baptism and he's raised up. How is he anointed? The spirit, a dove came down. Okay, so the oil is the Holy Spirit. So what we're really trying to understand here is what is the function of the Holy Spirit that would appear to be flowing between the olive trees and the lampstand?
again, it seems to me that frequently things are just not as they seem to be or as they are often described. So, for example, read a verse like this, then Saul, also known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit. What comes to your mind when you think of someone filled with the Holy Spirit? Um, have you ever been in a big religious gathering where someone was filled with the Holy Spirit? And what were they doing? Frequently, yeah, it's something. Well, let, let's just read the text and let's see what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you had to choose one person in the Bible who is the best example of someone filled with the Holy Spirit, who would it be? Yeah, several people say Jesus. What was Jesus like? Well, we read this passage. Here is my servant, whom I strengthen, the one I have chosen, with whom I am pleased. I have filled him with my spirit. We want to really see what it is to be full of the spirit. Ultimately, it's to be Christ-like. He will bring justice to every nation. And the description of this one who's filled with the Holy Spirit, we just read on. He will not shout or raise his voice. That's your picture of someone who's filled with the Holy Spirit. Or make loud speeches in the streets. Have you ever noticed it's hard to shout the sermons of Jesus? Uh, blessed are the meek. Uh, it's hard to pound a pulpit with uh, some of the uh, sermons that Jesus gave. He will not break off a bent reed nor put out a flickering lamp. I mean, this is describing uh, a very humble individual filled with the Holy Spirit. What is the function of the Holy Spirit? Just before Jesus left, this incredible passage in John. I mean, it is just the, the heart of the Bible. And he would say, I'm going to leave, but the Spirit will come. And he would describe this function of the Holy Spirit. The helper, the Holy Spirit will come. The Spirit, okay, what does he do? Who reveals the truth about God? And this is not just one verse. He repeated it again and again. When the Spirit comes, what's his function? Who reveals the truth about God? He will lead you into all the truth. What truth? The truth about God. He will give me glory because he will take what I say and tell it to you. So the Spirit reveals the truth about God. The Spirit intensely reminds us and brings meaning to our minds about every action, every word of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the supreme revelation of what God is like. So the Holy Spirit points us to Jesus. And again, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper who will stay with you forever. He is the Spirit, again, his function, who reveals the truth about God. He repeated this uh, four times in this passage in John. He reveals the truth about God. He reveals the truth about God. Last week, we read Jesus' mission. I have completed my your mission for me. I've completed the mission, which was to reveal you, to reveal your character. So not surprisingly then, the function of the Holy Spirit is ultimately to po point us back to the mission of Jesus, which was to reveal what God is like. Hard to select just a few of these, but I like this one in John 4. Jesus would say, but a time is coming and it's already here. Even now the true worshipers are being led by the Spirit to worship the Father according to the truth. These are the ones the Father is seeking to worship him. God is Spirit and those who worship God must be led by the Spirit to worship him according to the truth. And we just read on the last slide, it is the truth about God. This is the truth that sets us free. This truth, this understanding, intimate understanding of the true character and goodness of our God. Paul would say in Ephesians 1, I have not stopped giving thanks to God for you. I remember you in my prayers and ask the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, to give you the Spirit. What do we have when we have the Spirit? Who will make you wise and reveal God to you? 
same thing, reveals God, reveals the truth about God. And notice, so that you will know him. The significance, so many times in the Bible, to know God is eternal life. This is an intimate, relational knowledge based uh, on a true understanding of his character. Okay, so uh, there's, a, there's a relationship here that I think is very important, and that is, um, it is a law that we become like the God we love, worship, and admire. I won't bring in all the, the text to this, but that's why it is so important that our picture of God is as close to the reality as possible. No one has a perfect picture of God. Um, we're all striving for that. But we become like the God we love, worship, and admire. Uh, look at the Pharisees. What kind of a picture of God did they have? It certainly was completely opposite to the picture of God that Jesus revealed. That's why they could so easily dismiss the true God, looked at him right in the face and said, you are of the devil. Okay, so, so very important that our picture of God is pointed towards the reality. We become like the God we love, worship, and admire. So if we're full of the Spirit, then there are Christ-like characters and qualities that naturally develop. So what does someone full of the Spirit look like? Well, ultimately, they look like Jesus, but here are the qualities. But the Spirit produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, humility, and out of control. No, self-control. And again, self-control here doesn't mean uh, we are gritting our teeth trying to obey. Um, sin has really created in us this very chaotic, rebellious um, kind of an attitude. When we are full of the Spirit, um, ultimately we have regained our individuality and we obey God, we're with God out of the highest sense of freedom. So self-control is not a, I'm clenching my teeth trying to do what is right. It is obeying in the highest sense of freedom because we are now in agreement with God. Okay, so these are the fruits of the Spirit. And in another passage here, 2 Timothy 1, very similar, for the spirit that God has given us does not make us timid. Instead, his spirit fills us with power, love, and self-control. And oftentimes I've heard this power. We just isolate on that. Spirit fills us with power. Well, last week, do you remember, we read where Jesus was in recognition of complete power. And in that complete power, he washed the feet of his betrayer. Okay, so God's power is ultimately the great revelation of his love, his goodness, his kindness, love, and again, uh, self-control. These are the fruits of the Spirit. This is what it means to be full of the Spirit. So we, we have this, uh, this oil, this Holy Spirit, that it, we are to be completely full of, and it is joined to this lampstand. And the lampstand uh, here in Revelation, we have this vision of Jesus walking among the seven lampstands, which are... We're clearly told it is the seven churches. So ultimately, you know, Zerubbabel and Joshua are not the only two olive trees here described, but all of God's people, all of God's friends are to be joined together uh, to make up the body of Christ, which is the lampstand. Joined to God and to each other. So when Jesus would say, you are like light for the whole world, a city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl. Instead, it is put on the lampstand where it gives light for everyone in the house. In the same way, your light must shine before people so that they will see the good things you do and praise your Father in heaven. So again, to be full of the Holy Spirit is to receive this knowledge of God. 
to enter into this relationship with God and not through our own efforts, but again, as a natural process, the character of Jesus, perhaps dimly reflected, but it is reflected in his people. We become like the God we love, worship, and admire. And so the Christ-like qualities of love, goodness, patience, humility, kindness, self-control, these are reflected in his people, the lampstand, the body of Christ, and then this becomes a great light for the whole world. Um, last year we described the, uh, this whole sanctuary system, and that lampstand is in the holy place. And uh, many times the wicks were described as being turned so that they would shine out of the curtain. Again, as a witness to come on in. All right, so we are to be a light to the world to draw people ultimately to Christ. So people don't praise us, but rather they see the good things you do and praise your Father in heaven. So it's just like someone uh, that has a very serious medical illness. They've been to lots of doctors, there's no cure, and then they see a doctor who has a cure. And what do people say? I mean, wow, look at you. You look so much better. It's wonderful. And then the next question is, who did you see? So the attention is ultimately drawn to the heavenly physician. Okay, so again, we have these olive trees, the oil, and the bright light that is the result. Not by might, not by power. Those are not the methods of God's kingdom, but through his spirit, a kingdom that is not of this world. Now, uh, a last point here is... If all this is true about the Holy Spirit, then what is the sin of the Holy Spirit? Uh, this one scared me a great deal as a child because I always worried, I hope I don't think a thought that is against the Holy Spirit or else I'm out of the kingdom right away. The unpardonable sin. Very scary. But again, hold on to this uh, definition of the function of the Holy Spirit, which is to bring the truth about God. And we bring that to this passage here in Matthew 12 where the people watch Jesus doing all these good things. These were the religious leaders. And they looked him in the eye and said this, he drives out demons only because their ruler, Beelzebub, gives him power to do so. So basically they looked at Jesus and they saw Satan. He does these miracles through the power of Satan. Well, Jesus knew what they were thinking and ultimately said, no, it is not Beelzebub, but God's spirit who gives me the power to drive out demons, which proves that the kingdom of God has already come upon you. For this reason, I tell you, people can be forgiven any sin and any evil thing they say, but whoever says evil things against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who says something against the Son of Man can be forgiven, but whoever says something against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven now or ever. Okay, now... What's the meaning here? Basically, I think it is this. The Holy Spirit, the function of the Holy Spirit is to bring us the truth about God, what he is like in character. And when we are actually so separated from a true knowledge of God that we can look the real God in the face and say, you are satanic, uh, that is the sin of the Holy Spirit. It is to have things completely reversed where we see the uh, character traits of Satan and say, that is of God, and we see the kind of person God is ruled by Jesus, and we say, that is Satan, uh, what more can God do? That is when we've completely turned off and rejected the Holy Spirit altogether. It's not an arbitrary decision on God's part. It is not God saying, well, now you've really crossed the line, I can't take you back. Uh, it is rather God has done everything possible that he can. He's poured out everything on us, trying to reach us with that true knowledge, and we've said no at every turn, and finally there is absolutely no way that God can reach us. 
There is no oil, there is no connection, there's no truth, and at that, that is the sin of the Holy Spirit. Not an arbitrary decision on God's part, but ultimately um, a decision on our part to reject God and to reject truth. So seen in that way, perhaps it's a, uh, not such a scary thing, although it is scary, certainly, to be like these religious people who were keeping the Sabbath, going to church, paying tithe, reading their Bibles every day, trying so carefully to obey, and yet they could look at their God and say, you are of the devil. Now, it's not to say that those uh, outward behaviors are wrong or bad, but it is to say we're actually capable of doing all of those external things and yet having a satanic picture of God. So ultimately, of course, we have an intimate knowledge of God and we do all these good things out of a sense of freedom and because we love God, not because we're uh, trying to obey or trying to please God or to um, avoid punishment. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much that you have gone to such great lengths to pour out your Holy Spirit on each one of us. And um, I ask just now that each one of us will have a greater knowledge of you, that our understanding of truth about you will grow and grow throughout this year. And may we be a, light, a great light in the world, not of power or force, but to reveal your goodness, your gentleness, your humility, that in some uh, perhaps dim way we might reflect the character of Christ through those that we meet. In your name we pray. Amen.